Book Twelve, Part Three of the Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa. The Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Brodribb. Book Twelve, A.D. Forty-Eight to Fifty-Four, Part Three. War with the Armenians, Hiberians, and Parthians. In the same year war broke out between the Armenians and Iberians, and was the cause of very serious disturbances between Parthia and Rome. Volgeses was king of the Parthians. On the mother's side he was the offspring of a Greek concubine, and he obtained the throne by the retirement of his brothers. Pharasmenes had been long in possession of Iberia, and his brother Mithridates ruled Armenia, with our powerful support. There was a son of Pharasmenes, named Ratamistus, tall and handsome, of singular bodily strength, trained in all the accomplishments of his countrymen, and highly renowned among his neighbours. He boasted so arrogantly and persistently, that his father's prolonged old age kept back from him the little kingdom of Iberia, as to make no concealment of his ambition. Pharasmenes, accordingly, seeing the young prince had power in his grasp, and was strong in the attachment of his people, fearing, too, his own declining years, tempted him with other prospects, and pointed to Armenia, which, as he reminded him, he had given to Mithridates after driving out the Parthians. But open violence, he said, must be deferred. Artful measures which might crush him unawares were better." So Radamistus pretended to be at feud with his father, as though his stepmother's hatred was too strong for him, and went to his uncle. While he was treated by him like a son with excessive kindness, he lured the nobles of Armenia into revolutionary schemes without the knowledge of Mithridates, who was actually loading him with honours. He then assumed a show of reconciliation with his father, to whom he returned, telling him all that could be accomplished by treachery was now ready, and that he must complete the affair by the sword. Meanwhile, Pharasmenes invented pretexts for war. When he was fighting with the king of the Albanians, and appealing to the Romans for aid, his brother, he said, had opposed him, and he would now avenge that wrong by his destruction. At the same time he gave a large army to his son, who by a sudden invasion drove Mithridates in terror from the open country, and forced him into the fortress of Gorneas, which was strongly situated and garrisoned by some soldiers under the command of Caelius Pollio, a camp prefect, and Casperius, a centurion. There is nothing of which barbarians are so ignorant as military engines and the skilful management of sieges, while that is a branch of military science which we especially understand. And so Ratamistus, having attempted the fortified walls in vain or with loss, began a blockade, and finding that his assaults were despised, tried to bribe the rapacity of the camp prefect. Casperius protested earnestly against the overthrow of an allied king and of Armenia, the gift of the Roman people, through iniquity and greed of gain. At last, as Pollio pleaded the overpowering numbers of the enemy, and Ratamistus the orders of his father, the centurion stipulated for a truce, and retired, intending, if he could not deter Pharasmenes from further hostilities, to inform Umidius Quadratus, the governor of Syria, of the state of Armenia. 
By the centurion's departure, the camp prefect was released, so to say, from surveillance, and he now urged Mithridates to conclude a treaty. He reminded him of the tie of brotherhood, of the seniority and age of Pherasmenes, and of their other bonds of kindred, how he was united by marriage to his brother's daughter, and was himself the father-in-law of Radamistus. The Iberians, he said, were not against peace, though for the moment they were the stronger. The perfidy of the Armenians was notorious, and he had nothing to fall back on but a fortress without stores, so he must not hesitate to prefer a bloodless negotiation to arms. As Mithridates wavered, and suspected the intentions of the camp prefect, because he had seduced one of the king's concubines, and was reputed a man who could be bribed into any wickedness, Casperius, meantime, went to Pherasmenes, and required of him that the Iberians should raise the blockade. Pherasmenes, to his face, replied vaguely, and often in a conciliatory tone, while by secret messages he recommended Radamistus to hurry on the siege by all possible means. Then the price of infamy was raised, and Pollio by secret corruption induced the soldiers to demand peace, and to threaten that they would abandon the garrison. Under this compulsion, Mithridates agreed to a day and a place for negotiation, and quitted the fortress. Radamistus at first threw himself into his embraces, feigning respect and calling him father-in-law and parent. He swore an oath, too, that he would do him no violence, either by the sword or by poison. At the same time he drew him into a neighbouring grove, where he assured him that the appointed sacrifice was prepared for the confirmation of peace in the presence of the gods. It is a custom of these princes, whenever they join alliance, to unite their right hands and bind together the thumbs in a tight knot. Then, when the blood has flowed into the extremities, they let it escape by a slight puncture and suck it in turn. Such a treaty is thought to have a mysterious sanctity as being sealed with the blood of both parties. On this occasion, he who was applying the knot pretended that it has fallen off, and suddenly seizing the knees of Mithridates, flung him to the ground. At the same moment, a rush was made by a number of persons, and chains were thrown round him. Then he was dragged along by a fetter, an extreme degradation to a barbarian, and soon the common people, whom he had held under a harsh sway, heaped insults on him with menacing gestures, though some, on the contrary, pitied such a reverse of fortune. His wife followed him with his little children, and filled every place with her wailings. They were hidden away in different covered carriages, till the orders of Pherasmenes were distinctly ascertained. The lust of rule was more to him than his brother and his daughter, and his heart was steeled to any wickedness. Still he spared his eyes the seeing them slain before his face. Radamistus, too, seemingly mindful of his oath, neither unsheathed the sword nor used poison against his sister and uncle, but had them thrown on the ground and then smothered them under a mass of heavy clothes. Even the sons of Mithridates were butchered for having shed tears over their parents' murder. Quadratus, learning that Mithridates had been betrayed and that his kingdom was in the hands of his murderers, summoned a council, and, having informed them of what had occurred, consulted them whether he should take vengeance. Few cared for the honour of the state, most argued in favour of a safe course, saying that any crime in a foreign country was to be welcomed with joy, and that the seeds of strife ought to be actually sown, 
on the very principle on which Roman emperors had often, under a show of generosity, given away this same kingdom of Armenia to excite the minds of the barbarians. Radamistus might retain his ill-gotten gains, as long as he was hated and infamous, for this was more to Rome's interest than for him to have succeeded with glory. To this view they assented, but that they might not be thought to have approved the crime and receive contrary orders from the emperor, envoys were sent to Pharasmanes, requiring him to withdraw from Armenian territory and remove his son. Julius Pelignus was then procurator of Cappadocia, a man despised alike for his feebleness of mind and his grotesque personal appearance. He was, however, very intimate with Claudius, who, when in private life, used to beguile the dullness of his leisure with the society of jesters. This Pelignus collected some provincial auxiliaries, apparently with the design of recovering Armenia, but while he plundered allies instead of enemies, finding himself, through the desertion of his men and the raids of the barbarians, utterly defenceless, he went to Radamistus, whose gift so completely overcame him that he positively encouraged him to assume the ensigns of royalty, and himself assisted at the ceremony, authorising and abetting. When the disgraceful news had spread far and wide, lest the world might judge of other governors by Pelignus, Helvidius Priscus was sent in command of a legion to regulate, according to circumstances, the disordered state of affairs. He quickly crossed Mount Taurus, and had restored order to a great extent more by moderation than by force, when he was ordered to return to Syria, that nothing might arise to provoke a war with Parthia. For Vologeses, thinking that an opportunity presented itself of invading Armenia, which, though the possession of his ancestors, was now, through a monstrous crime held by a foreign prince, raised an army, and prepared to establish Tiridates on the throne, so that not a member of his house might be without kingly power. On the advance of the Parthians, the Iberians dispersed without a battle, and the Armenian cities, Artaxata and Tigranocerta, submitted to the yoke. Then a frightful winter, or deficient supplies, with pestilence arising from both causes, forced Vologeses to abandon his present plans. Armenia was thus again without a king, and was invaded by Radamistus, who was now fiercer than ever, looking on the people as disloyal and sure to rebel on the first opportunity. They, however, though accustomed to be slaves, suddenly threw off their tameness and gathered round the palace in arms. Radamistus had no means of escape but in the swiftness of the horses which bore him and his wife away. Pregnant as she was, she endured, somehow or other, out of fear of the enemy and love of her husband, the first part of the flight, but after a while, when she felt herself shaken by its continuous speed, she implored to be rescued by an honourable death from the shame of captivity. He at first embraced, cheered, and encouraged her, now admiring her heroism, now filled with a sickening apprehension at the idea of her being left to any man's mercy. Finally, urged by the intensity of his love and familiarity with dreadful deeds, he unsheathed his scimitar, and having stabbed her, dragged her to the bank of the Araxes, and committed her to the stream, so that her very body might be swept away. Then, in headlong flight, he hurried to Iberia, his ancestral kingdom. Zenobia, meanwhile, this was her name, 
as she yet breathed and showed signs of life on the calm water at the river's edge, was perceived by some shepherds, who, inferring from her noble appearance that she was no base-born woman, bound up her wound and applied to it their rustic remedies. As soon as they knew her name and her adventure, they conveyed her to the city of Artaxata, whence she was conducted at the public charge to Tiridates, who received her kindly and treated her as a royal person. In the consulship of Faustus Sulla and Salvius Otto, Furius Scribonianus was banished on the ground that he was consulting the astrologers about the emperor's death. His mother, Junia, was included in the accusation as one who still resented the misfortune of exile which she had suffered in the past. His father, Camillus, had raised an armed insurrection in Dalmatia, and the emperor in again sparing a hostile family sought the credit of clemency. But the exile did not live long after this. Whether he was cut off by a natural death or by poison was matter of conflicting rumours, according to people's belief. A decree of the Senate was then passed for the expulsion of the astrologers from Italy, stringent but ineffectual. Next the emperor, in a speech, commended all who, from their limited means, voluntarily retired from the senatorian order, while those were degraded from it who, by retaining their seats, added effrontery to poverty. During these proceedings he proposed to the Senate a penalty on women who united themselves in marriage to slaves, and it was decided that those who had thus demeaned themselves, without the knowledge of the slave's master, should be reduced to slavery, if, with his consent, should be ranked as freedwomen. To Pallas, who, as the emperor declared, was the author of this proposal, were offered on the motion of Barea Seranus, consul-elect, the decorations of the praetorship, and fifteen million sesterces. Cornelius Scipio added that he deserved public thanks for thinking less of his ancient nobility as a descendant from the kings of Arcadia than of the welfare of the state, and allowing himself to be numbered among the emperor's ministers. Claudius assured them that Pallas was content with the honour, and that he limited himself to his former poverty. A decree of the Senate was publicly inscribed on a bronze tablet, heaping the praises of primitive frugality on a freedman, the possessor of three hundred million sesterces. Not equally moderate was his brother, surnamed Felix, who had for some time been governor of Judea, and thought that he could do any evil act with impunity, backed up as he was by such power. It is true that the Jews had shown symptoms of commotion in a seditious outbreak, and when they heard of the assassination of Caius, there was no hearty submission, as a fear still lingered that any of the emperors might impose the same orders. Felix, meanwhile, by ill-timed remedies, stimulated disloyal acts, while he had, as a rival in the worst wickedness, Ventidius Cumanus, who held a part of the province, which was so divided that Galilea was governed by Cumanus, Samaria by Felix. The two peoples had long been at feud, and now less than ever restrained their enmity from contempt of their rulers. And accordingly they plundered each other, letting loose bands of robbers, forming ambuscades, and occasionally fighting battles, and carrying the spoil and booty to the two procurators, who at first rejoiced at all this, but, as the mischief grew, they interposed with an armed force, which was cut to pieces." The flame of war would have spread through the province, but it was saved by Quadratus, governor of Syria. 
In dealing with the Jews, who had been daring enough to slay our soldiers, there was little hesitation about their being capitally punished. Some delay, indeed, was occasioned by Cumanus and Felix, for Claudius, on hearing the causes of the rebellion, had given authority for deciding also the case of these procurators. Quadratus, however, exhibited Felix as one of the judges, admitting him to the bench with the view of cowing the ardour of the prosecutors, and so Cumanus was condemned for the crimes which the two had committed, and tranquillity was restored to the province. Not long afterwards, some tribes of the wild population of Cilicia, known as the Cletae, which had often been in commotion, established a camp under a leader, Troxobor, on their rocky mountains, whence rushing down on the coast and on the towns they dared to do violence to the farmers and townsfolk, frequently even to the merchants and shipowners. They besieged the city Animurium, and routed some troopers sent from Syria to its rescue under the command of Curtius Severus, for the rough country in the neighbourhood, suited as it is for the fighting of infantry, did not allow of cavalry operations. After a time Antiochus, king of that coast, having broken the unity of the barbarian forces by cajolery of the people and treachery to their leader, slew Troxobor and a few chiefs, and pacified the rest by gentle measures. About the same time the mountain between Lake Fucinus and the river Liris was bored through, and that this grand work might be seen by a multitude of visitors, preparations were made for a naval battle on the lake, just as formerly Augustus exhibited such a spectacle, in a basin he had made this side the Tiber, though with light vessels and on a smaller scale. Claudius equipped galleys with three and four banks of oars and nineteen thousand men. He lined the circumference of the lake with rafts, that there might be no means of escape at various points, but he still left full space for the strength of the crews, the skill of the pilots, the impact of the vessels, and the usual operations of a sea-fight. On the raft stood companies of the Praetorian cohorts and cavalry, with a breastwork in front of them, from which catapults and ballistas might be worked. The rest of the lake was occupied by marines on decked vessels. An immense multitude from the neighbouring towns, others from Rome itself, eager to see the sight or to show respect to the emperor, crowded the banks, the hills, and mountain-tops, which thus resembled a theatre. The emperor, with Agrippina seated near him, presided. He wore a splendid military cloak, she a mantle of cloth of gold. A battle was fought with all the courage of brave men, though it was between condemned criminals. After much bloodshed, they were released from the necessity of mutual slaughter. When the sight was over, the outlet of the water was opened. The careless execution of the work was apparent, the tunnel not having been bored down so low as the bottom or middle of the lake. Consequently, after an interval, the excavations were deepened, and to attract a crowd once more, a show of gladiators was exhibited, with floating pontoons for an infantry engagement. A banquet, too, was prepared, close to the outflow of the lake, and it was the means of greatly alarming the whole company, for the water, in the violence of its outburst, swept away the adjoining parts, shook the more remote, and spread terror with the tremendous crash. At the same time Agrippina availed herself of the emperor's fright to charge Narcissus, who had been the agent of the work, with avarice and peculation. 
he too was not silent, but inveighed against the domineering temper of her sex and her extravagant ambition. In the consulship of Didius Junius and Quintus Haterius, Nero, now sixteen years of age, married Octavia, the emperor's daughter. Anxious to distinguish himself by noble pursuits and the reputation of an orator, he advocated the cause of the people of Ilium, and having eloquently recounted how Rome was the offspring of Troy and Aeneas the founder of the Julian line, with other old traditions akin to myths, he gained for his clients exemption from all public burdens. His pleading, too, procured for the colony of Bononia, which had been ruined by a fire, a subvention of ten million sesterces. The Rhodians also had their freedom restored to them, which had often been taken away, or confirmed, according to their services to us in foreign wars, or their seditious misdeeds at home. A Palmyra, too, which had been shaken by an earthquake, had its tribute remitted for five years. Claudius, on the other hand, was being prompted to exhibit the worst cruelty by the artifices of the same Agrippina. On the accusation of Tarquitius Priscus, she ruined Statilius Taurus, who was famous for his wealth, and at whose gardens she cast a greedy eye. Priscus had served under Taurus in his proconsular government of Africa, and, after their return, charged him with a few acts of extortion, but particularly with magical and superstitious practices. Taurus, no longer able to endure a false accusation and an undeserved humiliation, put a violent end to his life before the Senate's decision was pronounced. Tarquitius was, however, expelled from the Senate, a point which the senators carried, out of hatred for the accuser, notwithstanding the intrigues of Agrippina. That same year the emperor was often heard to say that the legal decisions of the commissioners of the imperial treasury ought to have the same force as if pronounced by himself. Lest it might be supposed that he had stumbled inadvertently into this opinion, its principle was also secured by a decree of the Senate, on a more complete and ample scale than before. It had indeed already been arranged by the divine Augustus that the Roman knights who governed Egypt should hear causes, and that their decisions were to be as binding as those of Roman magistrates, and after a time most of the cases formerly tried by the praetors were submitted to the knights. Claudius handed over to them the whole administration of justice for which there had been, by sedition or war, so many struggles. The Sempronian laws, vesting judicial power in the equestrian order, and those of Servilius restoring it to the Senate, while it was for this above everything else that Marius and Sulla fought of old. But those were days of political conflict between classes, and the results of victory were binding on the state. Caius Oppius and Cornelius Balbus were the first who were able, with Caesar's support, to settle conditions of peace and terms of war. To mention after them the Matii, Vedii, and other too influential names of Roman knights would be superfluous, when Claudius, we know, raised freedmen whom he had set over his household to equality with himself and with the laws. Next, the emperor proposed to grant immunity from taxation to the people of Cos, and he dwelt much on their antiquity. The Argives, or Coius, the father of Latona, were the earliest inhabitants of the island. Soon afterwards, by the arrival of Isculapius, the art of the physician was introduced, and was practised with much fame by his descendants. Claudius named them one by one, with the periods in which they had respectively flourished. 
He said, too, that Xenophon, of whose medical skill he availed himself, was one of the same family, and that they ought to grant his request and let the people of Cos dwell free from all tribute in their sacred island, as a place devoted to the sole service of their god. It was also certain that many obligations under which they had laid Rome, and joint victories with her, might have been recounted. Claudius, however, did not seek to veil under any external considerations a concession he had made, with his usual good nature, to an individual. Envoys from Byzantium, having received audience, in complaining to the Senate of their heavy burdens, recapitulated their whole history. Beginning with the treaty which they concluded with us when we fought against that king of Macedonia, whose supposed spurious birth acquired for him the name of the Pseudo-Philip, they reminded us of the forces which they had afterwards sent against Antiochus, Perses, and Aristonicus, of the aid they had given Antonius in the pirate war, of their offers to Sulla, Lucullus, and Pompeius, and then of their late services to the Caesars, when they were in occupation of a district peculiarly convenient for the land or sea passage of generals and armies, as well as for the conveyance of supplies. It was indeed on that very narrow strait which parts Europe from Asia, at Europe's furthest extremity, that the Greeks built Byzantium. When they consulted the Pythian Apollo as to where they should found a city, the oracle replied that they were to seek a home opposite to the blind men's country. This obscure hint pointed to the people of Chalcedon, who, though they arrived there first and saw before others the advantageous position, chose the worse for Byzantium has a fruitful soil and productive seas, as immense shoals of fish pour out of the Pontus, and are driven by the sloping surface of the rocks under water to quit the windings of the Asiatic shore, and take refuge in these harbours. Consequently the inhabitants were at first money-making and wealthy traders, but afterwards, under the pressure of excessive burdens, they petitioned for immunity, or at least relief, and were supported by the emperor, who argued to the Senate that, exhausted as they were by the late wars in Thrace and Bosporus, they deserved help. So their tribute was remitted for five years. In the year of the consulship of Marcus Asinius and Manius Achilius, it was seen to be portended by a succession of prodigies that there were to be political changes for the worse. The soldiers' standards and tents were set in a blaze by lightning. A swarm of bees settled on the summit of the capital, Births of monsters, half man, half beast, and of a pig with hawk's talons, were reported. It was accounted a portent that every order of magistrates had had its number reduced, a quaestor, an aedile, a tribune, a praetor, and consul having died within a few months. But Agrippina's terror was the most conspicuous. Alarmed by some words dropped by Claudius when half-intoxicated, that it was his destiny to have to endure his wife's infamy and at last punish it, she determined to act without a moment's delay. First she destroyed Lepida, from motives of feminine jealousy. Lepida, indeed, as the daughter of the younger Antonia, as the grand-niece of Augustus, the cousin of Agrippina, and sister of her husband Cnaeus, thought herself of equally high rank. In beauty, youth, and wealth they differed but slightly. Both were shameless, infamous, and intractable, and were rivals in vice as much as in the advantages they had derived from fortune. It was indeed a desperate contest whether the aunt or the mother should have most power over Nero. 
Lepida tried to win the young prince's heart by flattery and lavish liberality, while Agrippina, on the other hand, who could give her son empire, but could not endure that he should be emperor, was fierce and full of menace. It was charged on Lepida that she had made attempts on the emperor's consort by magical incantations, and was disturbing the peace of Italy by an imperfect control of her troops of slaves in Calabria. She was for this sentenced to death, notwithstanding the vehement opposition of Narcissus, who, as he more and more suspected Agrippina, was said to have plainly told his intimate friends that his destruction was certain, whether Britannicus or Nero were to be emperor, but that he was under such obligations to Claudius that he would sacrifice life to his welfare. Messalina and Silius had been convicted, and now again there were similar grounds for accusation. If Nero were to rule or Britannicus succeed to the throne, he would himself have no claim on the then reigning sovereign. Meanwhile, a stepmother's treacherous schemes were convulsing the whole imperial house, with far greater disgrace than would have resulted from his concealment of the profligacy of the emperor's former wife. Even as it was, there was shamelessness enough, seeing that Pallas was her paramour, so that no one could doubt that she held honour, modesty, and her very person, everything, in short, cheaper than sovereignty. This and the like he was always saying, and he would embrace Britannicus, expressing earnest wishes for his speedy arrival at a mature age, and would raise his hand, now to heaven, now to the young prince, with entreaty that as he grew up he would drive out his father's enemies, and also take vengeance on the murderers of his mother. Under this great burden of anxiety he had an attack of illness, and went to Sinuessa to recruit his strength with its balmy climate and salubrious waters. Thereupon Agrippina, who had long decided on the crime, and eagerly grasped at the opportunity thus offered, and did not lack instruments, deliberated on the nature of the poison to be used. The deed would be betrayed by one that was sudden and instantaneous, while if she chose a slow and lingering poison, there was a fear that Claudius, when near his end, might, on detecting the treachery, return to his love for his son. She decided on some rare compound which might derange his mind and delay death. A person skilled in such matters was selected, Locusta by name, who had lately been condemned for poisoning, and had long been retained as one of the tools of despotism. By this woman's art the poison was prepared, and it was to be administered by an eunuch, Halotus, who was accustomed to bring in and taste the dishes. All the circumstances were subsequently so well known that writers of the time have declared that the poison was infused into some mushrooms, a favourite delicacy, and its effect not at the instant perceived, from the emperor's lethargic or intoxicated condition. His bowels too were relieved, and this seemed to have saved him. Agrippina was thoroughly dismayed. Fearing the worst, and defying the immediate obloquy of the deed, she availed herself of the complicity of Xenophon, the physician, which she had already secured. Under pretense of helping the emperor's efforts to vomit, this man, it is supposed, introduced into his throat a feather smeared with some rapid poison, for he knew that the greatest crimes are perilous in their inception, but well rewarded after their consummation. Meanwhile the Senate was summoned, and prayers rehearsed by the consuls and priests for the Emperor's recovery, though the lifeless body was being wrapped in blankets with warm applications, while all was being arranged to establish Nero on the throne. 
At first Agrippina, seemingly overwhelmed by grief and seeking comfort, clasped Britannicus in her embraces, called him the very image of his father, and hindered him by every possible device from leaving the chamber. She also detained his sisters, Antonia and Octavia, closed every approach to the palace with a military guard, and repeatedly gave out that the emperor's health was better, so that the soldiers might be encouraged to hope, and that the fortunate moment foretold by the astrologers might arrive. At last, at noon on the 13th of October, the gates of the palace were suddenly thrown open, and Nero, accompanied by Burrus, went forth to the cohort which was on guard after military custom. There, at the suggestion of the commanding officer, he was hailed with joyful shouts and set on a litter. Some, it is said, hesitated, and looked round and asked where Britannicus was. Then, when there was no one to lead a resistance, they yielded to what was offered them. Nero was conveyed into the camp, and having first spoken suitably to the occasion, and promised a donative after the example of his father's bounty, he was unanimously greeted as emperor. The decrees of the senate followed the voice of the soldiers, and there was no hesitation in the provinces. Divine honours were decreed to Claudius, and his funeral rites were solemnised on the same scale as those of Augustus, for Agrippina strove to emulate the magnificence of her great-grandmother Livia. But his will was not publicly read, as the preference of the stepson to the son might provoke a sense of wrong and angry feeling in the popular mind. End of Book Twelve